0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Ten Seven podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. In this episode of the podcast, Drew Gorton, Director of Developer Relations at Pantheon. Drew's been involved with the web in some capacity going back to 1996 while teaching English in Japan. He started Gordon studios here in Minneapolis in 2001 and then in 2015, their product node squirrel was acquired by Pantheon where he now leads their developer relations team. I'm so glad to be able to call him a colleague, a fellow Drupaler and a friend. Drew, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Wow. It's my honor as well. You you dug into the uh, history vault for that one. You, uh, you I, don't, I don't think I have a Wikipedia page. How did you come up with all of that?
0: Uh, <laughs> it's, all <true. laughs> it's all true. Well, I kind of looked at your LinkedIn profile, to be honest.
1: Oh, right. I suppose that probably has some information on it.
0: All right. <laughs> well, let's let's start at the beginning, um, at the beginning yeah. of Drew Gorton. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Southeast Wisconsin, so between Milwaukee and Chicago. Um, it's a town called Racine, and it's about 80, 90, 100,000, somewhere in there. Um, my parents still live in the house that I grew up in, and uh, yeah, I was there through high school, and uh, that's that's kind of poignant for me, because after, as we, we, we've we talked about this before, but I now have two high school age children, one of whom is a senior this year, and I'm very aware of the fact that After I left for college I never went back home again to live and uh, this is one of the things like as a parent who enjoys his adult sons realizing like oh wait I might have a limited amount of time with them left but yeah I I came up here into the Minneapolis area for school and then uh, after after graduating lived abroad for a while did some other things but then came back and settled down I've basically been in Minneapolis for 20-ish years um, and doing web and drupal things for much of it. I,
0: I know how you feel with the adult kids and leaving home. It's interesting to think that once you leave, it's still in your brain somehow, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. never really think about going back, and now the opposite is happening. Yeah. And so, yeah, it really teaches you to cherish those moments with those those adult mm-hmm. kids. On your LinkedIn profile, it said you went to the Prairie School. What is the I, Prairie School? Wow, <laughs>
1: you did dig. Yeah, that was, the, that was the high school I graduated from, Racine. So Racine is big enough to have a few high schools. I think there are three of them. Uh, Prairie is a college prep school. So uh, it was actually a really good change for me. I went to where I grew up actually. It was kind of on a boundary that kept changing. So I never went to a school for more than two years before transferring over to Prairie. And um, as a kid, I was actually uh, not terribly well-adjusted to social niceties. Um, I was just, you know, I didn't get other kids. And so basically, that means I that and the frequent switching of schools meant uh, I was a pretty isolated kid and I was doing really badly in school, like despite having – all sorts of potential and doing well on, on standardized tests and things like that. I was kind of failing out and uh, a bit of a discipline problem. Uh, and so my parents decided that a change was needed and uh, they, they packed me off to the, uh, the, the college prep school and it was a pretty fantastic change. Um, I, really glad they did that. I don't know what you know, bridge I'd be living under if I hadn't had a big change there. Who knows? <laughs> well, probably not a bridge. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good change for me. So Prairie is a small liberal art, or a small, small college prep school in Racine. So like I graduated a class of 30-ish kids.
0: You're a liberal arts graduate. You yeah. started a web company. You yeah. sold a product company. Mm-hmm. Now, you, now you lead a group of engineers. Tell me about your time at St. Olaf. What, what did you come out thinking you would actually be doing?
1: So I went to college thinking I was going to become an architect. And uh, was intent on studying math and physics as an undergrad, and then going and doing architecture uh, as a combination of, well, essentially post-grad. Um, and by the end of my freshman year, I was convinced that physics sucked and, uh, and looking back, uh, I'm aware now that that was just a really, uh, a couple of bad props basically, like the teaching was not great. And at the time I just started to, at the time what I knew was this is not interesting. I don't know why I used to like this. It's just really boring. And these other classes that I'm taking, are pretty exciting and interesting and I'm really getting into them. And that was enough to push me out of physics. And then that started a slow evolution that actually my senior year ended with me totally flipping my, my, uh, my majors around be Spanish and religion with, uh, effectively a minor in math. I, I needed like two more classes to have like a triple major, but I decided not to kill myself. And that was part of what I was actually up to. Um, I kept the math major all the way through because I thought ba- basically, well, Math is employable somehow, probably, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think I can pull that off with a philosophy degree. And uh, in my senior year, I just decided, no, it's fine. I was in a seminar about uh, fractal and chaos theory, which I really enjoyed, but it didn't have a lot to do with bookkeeping. Um, And uh, I just decided (laughs) that you know what, if I'm really holding onto this major as an attempt to be employable, I'm about. Uh, four semesters past the point where any business is gonna care about this. Uh, And so I'll just go do the things I'm having fun with. Um, And so I ended up with the philosophy of religion uh, focus or degree and uh, Spanish. And Spanish was something that I uh, acquired or the the love of Spanish happened um, actually also from my time at Prairie is where it started. Uh, My senior year at Prairie, I had a friend who was an exchange student and I actually got to be really good friends with him. And at the end of my senior year, I actually went to visit him in Spain for about a month and it totally changed. Uh, It was a really impactful uh, visit and it really turned Spanish from being a class that I would joke around in and not really do very well in, in high school to something that I really, really enjoyed because I was having a chance to interact with people in this hitherto just like, kind of purposeless thing in my mind. Uh, but all of a sudden it opened up the, the ability to communicate with the family and the friends and all of the people. And that when I started school, when I started college, then I knew that I actually wanted to continue doing Spanish and maybe study abroad. And I did all of those things and I did it enough that, uh, a major was like right there as, as I was contemplating, what do I want to do? What do I want to, you know, I need to graduate soon. What are the majors I want to do? And, uh, and Spanish was one of the choices.
0: So are you bilingual or trilingual? Because I know you taught English in Japan and we've talked about Japan mm-hmm. in the past, you and I, um, but I don't yeah. recall.
1: So those are tricky things to claim. Um, my Spanish, my English is better than both of them. Uh, my Spanish <laughs> is pretty good. At one point in time, I would have been able to have a conversation like this at a natural speed in Spanish. Um, and I, uh, possibly could still do that, although I'm sure there'd be words I'd search for. And every so often I get into a situation where I do speak Spanish and, uh, and that happens. But I can usually just explain around it and be like, uh, what's the word for forehead? You know, the thing that's above your eyes and below your hair. What's that thing called? You know, I can say those kinds <laughs> of things. Um, uh, uh, my Japanese used to be quite good as well. Went from no Japanese on uh, arrival in Japan to being able to do things like lease a car and uh, sign an agreement and uh, certainly obviously uh, live there. We were there for three years and just live in a professional society and do all the things that you need to do to uh, survive and thrive in, in a different environment. But my, my written and reading of Japanese is not nearly as good. Japanese is, is a hard language to truly master. Uh, there is a, there's a ranking system, uh, why, like like an official Japanese government, like your level of proficiency in Japanese, and it's got four levels. And, wow, I think I'm a three? One is like university professor, like can can really be like incredibly articulate and, and uh, read and write, and a lot of the focus is on reading and writing. And basically my level of Japanese is conversational. Like this person can live in Japan and read a newspaper article and uh, converse, but they're not going to write a, a paper, like, like a, a research paper in, in Japanese would be, would have been out of my grip at the time. And like nowadays I look back, I've, I, you know, I've got notes that I would take in Japanese every so often. Actually, we moved houses like two or three years ago and uh, I had occasion to look back and discover a notebook that I had written. And to see your own handwriting and be like, what in God's name it was like <laughs> I'm like, oh man. I mean, I obviously knew this at one point in time, but I really have to struggle to figure out what I wrote down. Like recipes, for example, like talking with wow. friends, got recipes. Like, wow, okay, is that chicken or is that pork or what? <laughs>
0: it must have been so, fascinating to immerse yourself in a completely um, unknown culture and society and then have to learn how to swim and uh, mm. function It was it was an awesome opportunity and a real uh, It definitely
1: shaped a lot of who I am today. I know that for a fact It's hard to know exactly how the, that happened you know, like to, to isolate the specific things but I know that at the point at which I, I left for Japan I had at that point in time lived in Spain spent basically a year in Spain And so had some level of familiarity with, okay, it's different, but it's also kind of the same. We're all just people. We like to eat food. You know, some people are nice, some people aren't. Going to Japan was was an additional level of that. Like the, with, between Spain and Europe in general and the United States, there's a lot of shared cultural kinds of influences. So, Uh, historically, Europe was dominated by Christianity, for example, you know, a lot of that is here present in the United States. And so there are like just cultural touch points and um, understandings and such that are Judeo-Christian in background. Um, Whereas you go to Japan and it's very different. Um, You don't have that. That's a completely different worldview at the same time, we all like to eat. We are—they you know some people are nice, some people are less nice. Some people are welcoming to strangers; some people, are less so. Like there are a lot of commonalities again, but there was enough differences that it—it it also just gave me a cleaner understanding of what it is to be human, in a way mm-hmm. that uh, you know you can you see see through a few more layers uh, and realize just how much each of us is a product of the stories we tell and the the civilizations we celebrate and the you know the histories that we. Remember and share
0: and you taught English there, and you weren't there alone, mm-hmm. were you
1: that's right, yes, I was there for three years. I taught English in a high school uh, at a I was fortunate to be in a high school that was considered one of the better high schools in the area um, and so I had kids who were you know motivated to learn and engaged in the classroom, and that, you know that's great situation to be in as a teacher. Uh, But then I was there with my wife as well. So we had both lived individually, separately in different countries. And I got married soon after college. Uh, I lived in Spain. She lived in the, well, at the time, Czechoslovakia, but currently Czech Republic. We had these amazing experiences and we felt, you know, this is, you know, I, I learned a lot when I was there. I, you learned a lot when you were there. You have all these stories. I have all these stories. What if we did something together? And about a year out of, after being married, both of us were in jobs that were, you know, paying the rent, but not terribly interesting. And uh, and we decided, well, now's the time to do it. And we actually looked to Latin America primarily as the place to go. Uh, her family uh, had, uh, like, she's got four brothers and sisters, so five of them total. They had all been born in either Venezuela or Mexico, because her parents had lived there for, I think, 17 years or 20 years, a long time in the, the combination of the two different countries as uh, American expats. And and so she grew up with all the stories of Mexico and Venezuela and um, some light Spanish being spoken in the house and used for household terms. And so there's, again, with both of us, there was a touchdown to Spanish. Uh, however, Latin America was not a place that either of us had lived before. And uh, and we decided that, uh, well, you know, let's go try, figure out what we can do. It's Latin America to be new for both of us, but also combined, you know, like it, it, uh, it feels like it's, it's also like something nearby for both of us. And we ended up looking around at these things, um, and applied to something called the jet program, Japanese exchange teaching program on a fluke. Basically someone said like, Oh, well, Hey, while you're looking at things international, there's this one thing, you could like fill out the paperwork. and we were like, Japan, that's weird. Um, okay, well, all right, it'll be good for the experience, right? And so you filled out the paperwork, wrote the essays, whatever the things were, and uh, and then kind of forgot about it. And like two or three months later, they followed up with us, and got a letter. It was like, hey, I really loved your applications. You should come to Chicago to interview at the consulate. And we're like, Japan, Chicago, I don't want to go to Chicago. Wait, and we're like, your sister is in Chicago. She's kind of fun. We can go and hang out with her and like, we'll spend the weekend. We'll do that. And then, uh, Hey, we'll do this thing. And then, and then we'll just come back whatever. Uh, I was like, it'll be a good experience. And so then we went and we went to the consulate. We had this fun weekend. And again, like two or three months later, we kind of forgot about it. And then they wrote and they said, we would like to send you to Japan. And we were like, um, really? Uh, <laughs> and then we just, again, kind of went with her like, well, okay. You know, can't be that bad, right? Should be fun. We can do anything for a year, right? (laughs) So we went for a one year contract and then it was renewable up to three years. And we did that, went went through for three years, three years turned into being a natural break point um, just because of the way the visa system works. Um, We could have stayed longer, but it would have required a little bit. It was just again, like a natural like end point. And um, we looked around and, and saw other expatriates there and we saw that it was basically three years, there seemed to be another cutoff at seven years and then seemed to be a cutoff at, you know, then you're there for life. Uh, and mm. uh, and we we're kind of thinking about like, uh, you know, maybe start a family and, uh, you know, things like that. And so it was a hard decision at the time, but it was also a good decision. So we came back and been in Minneapolis uh, basically since.
0: While you were in Japan, were you thinking about or involved in the tech scene in any way? Or did that cam- come after you got back to the United States?
1: Uh, it started in Japan, actually. Well, and I remember, so I graduated from college in 94, and one of the, uh, the, one of the guys I lived with at the time uh, was actually in 94, was, got really excited about the web, and uh, he, he told me, he took me aside, he's like, hey, Drew, I think you'd really like this. His name is Ted. He's you know, a successful electrical engineer. He helps design chips these days. He took me aside and he's like, Drew, I think you'd really like this he showed me the screen. He was like, Hey, look at this. You can like find things all around the world. And, and I remember being totally not impressed. I was like, Ted, that's super nerdy. Let's go have a beer. And, and like, <laughs> this like, is just like, whatever, whatever, we're playing cards. Come on, join us. Uh, and then, you know, I think I talked him into it. He was like, no, you'd really like this. And I was like, I, I'm sure I would have a beer. And then I went and lived in Japan and that was an isolating experience. And at the same time, so that was 95 to 98. Uh, uh, at the same time, the web was starting to grow and actually in the probably 96, I realized here I'm using email to keep in touch with my family. Uh, I'm doing you know, like these things are emergent and real and new patterns. I started wanting to do, you know, give those same opportunities to my kids, the kids I was teaching. And so I started setting up email exchanges with students who are also learning English in different countries. So uh, Scandinavia, and then also, we ended up with uh, kids in Northern Ireland that we were communicating with, who obviously spoke English quite well. Uh, and then the, the next extension of that was, hey, what if we could like create little pages about ourselves and like post a picture and put something together and use that and like, like just get a little bit more of a sense for who these other people are? And so we started doing that uh, back and forth again with the, uh, the students in these different countries. It was just transformational it was like I could see the same change happen for my students that happened to me, for me when I lived in Spain this is real I'm talking to someone who's actually very real mm-hmm. I see their face uh, I see that person they're really cute I want to communicate with that person um, and like put a little extra effort into it uh, and now English was not a subject you needed to take to pass a test in order to get into a good university it was those things, yes, but also actually, this really cool thing you could learn in order to communicate with somebody impossibly far away, and you know the world has really shrunk a lot in the last twenty years, like you know talking about this now, that sounds like incredibly old timery in in many mm-hmm. ways, like my kids don 't have a sense for this at all, but at the time, it was just really eye opening to me, and I knew that I wanted to be involved with this technology. Um, Basically, right away, it was like, well, I'm teaching here. This is good. When I came back, it's what I I knew I wanted to be involved with web stuff. What that meant, what that you know, like how you know how you do that, I didn't know, but I saw it as a technology that was fundamentally transforming the world, and it was powerful. And uh, there are philosophically a number of things that were really attractive to me. So, the freedom to interact with people around the world, with regardless of like what you look like, what what you know, language you might speak, although you'll need at least a common one, uh, what your belief structure is, your gender, all you know, like all of those things can be stripped away and you can interact with folks everywhere. That, that was a, that's transformative and it's still, I mean, we're not done yet. It, it's, we're still in the early days of the web, but it is a fundamental building block in building a, a world culture, basically like this is still transforming the way that we think and identify ourselves. While there are all sorts of instances of people doing not so great things with these tools, uh, fundamentally, I think it's a, it continues to be a transformative power for the good.
0: I agree with that and I hope it continues to do that. Mm. It's always been mm-hmm. an ideal. I, I remember when the web started and I was in high school and in South Africa and we were mm. completely isolated and, uh, we just started becoming reintegrated into the world. And at the same time, the internet was uh, mm-hmm. starting to connect us. And I remember being overjoyed with the idea that I could connect on this level playing field with everybody mm-hmm. else. And it's, you know, I still believe, and I think you do too, that this is something that will transform our world and our culture. And mm-hmm. it's, it has, it's had a little bit of bad press lately the last it few
1: has, years
0: we have, yeah yeah but I, I think we both still believe in the ideal that maybe this is just a bump in the road
1: yeah well i think um i do believe that and i think it was perhaps a naive sort of like my own like wow i'm connecting with people but um the there are many people who grow up and are in environments that push them towards extremism and like you know have situations that are way less privileged than mine. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, regardless, uh, so, so it is changing the world. We are becoming worldwide civilization. Um, it turns out there are a lot of people with strikingly different, um, (laughs) ideas for what good is and what, you know, what should we be doing. And so there are some activities that happen in the name of, you know, what presumably people think are, are the right things to do. But, still fundamentally like we are so much more connected today and we're starting to learn more about each other and that's not without friction for sure i don't know i like I, i guess overall fundamentally i believe that that friction is probably just a necessary part of learning about each other
0: and i think as it matures and as we learn about those frictions we can learn to adapt to them And Mm -hmm. eventually, we hope, I like my hope is that ultimately we evolve past all of the trouble and past all of the issues that we have. Mm -hmm. So, you landed in Minneapolis, you chose Minneapolis, um, Mm -hmm. and you immediately founded Gorton Studios, or was there an interim
1: period? No, there was an interim period there, yeah. So, actually, what we immediately did was uh, we had both earned a pretty nice salary while we were in Japan. We were able to use that to uh, pay off student debts, which was great came back and had some money saved and then had actually paid into the equivalent of um, like social security in Japan. And when you leave Japan and say like, I'm, you know, thank you. I paid in social security. um, Can I have that money back? They say, yes. Uh, That's very kind of them. Um, I don't, I don't know that other countries do that. So you file some paperwork and then you get like a nice big lump sum. So anyways, we went back. My wife's parents live in Minneapolis. We lived in their basement. Uh, at, you know, low rent and uh, would do things like make meals together and play cards every night. Uh, and, but like after like six months, all of a sudden we realized the money was running short and we didn't have jobs. <laughs> we knew we were going to take a little while just to, you know, like, you know, let our ha- heads clear after being brought for so long. And then came back and uh, again, like six months later, realized, oh, we can't stay retired forever. We should do something. <laughs> which was really a bummer. Retirement was great, I liked it. Uh, So both of us actually went back to uh, jobs we'd been doing before. At the time, for me, that meant going back to the insurance company I had been working for where I did uh, uh, tech support. And I told them, look, I'll do tech support. This is fine. I don't want to do this long term. What I really want to do is this web stuff. However, all of the docs are web documents, all of the other things. like So I ended up sort of taking over internal uh, websites and then did that for about a year to the point where I could legitimately call myself, all right, I, you know, I'm actually pretty good with this stuff. I was troubleshooting it for other people. And, uh, again, maintaining a pretty large site without the advantages of things like PHP You know you know, like, you know, maintaining a site by hand that had like 5,000 pages in it. Mm. Um, that's like a, you know, like it was just like our internal help documentation.
0: Service uh, side and, includes are your friend at that point.
1: It could have been there, but I don't think uh I used them or we used them at all. Like it was like the header, you know, like and you know you've got 100 docs that've got like five links at the top and you've got, you know, like somewhere along the way you copy pasted the wrong header and they've got like 600 docs that have got like slightly <laughs> different versions of footer right. and everything else. Oh yeah, it was it was it was a beautiful uh, way to learn <laughs> that you don't manage this by hand, right? Um, so then I went from there to um, a web development job at a dot com startup, and that lasted about a year. It was very clear. Unfortunately, I uh, had some you know really enjoyed some of the people I worked with and the, the work we were doing. We were doing what we were calling at the time webcasting, which was taking television feeds and putting them on uh, putting them online using was it real real real
0: Real player were you real player that's the one. real player
1: wow we were using real player and uh i think the windows media was maybe out in some some format at that point but we used real player and um at least one of the other one of them and then we also had some custom stuff that allowed us to basically advance slides uh, for recorded versions so at the time it was pretty you know it was was like a ways ahead of things. But we never had a repeat customer. It was very clear that to me that it was not worth what we were selling it for. Went independent. uh, And then, you know, I'd been moonlighting at the time and then that just really took off. Um, And that was, I went independent in 2001. I remember incorporating like January, 2001. And essentially it worked out. um, Despite the (laughs) fact that the dot com crash and you know other things happened in short succession there, but I had enough clients lined up and enough savings and other things. I mean there were some dark years in there where it was work many 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 long hours and you know, but made it and um, you know the lean years were probably done within three or four, and then was able to start growing a team and had a had an awesome team with folks such as Lynn Winter on it for Lynn was probably with us for. Eight, maybe even longer years before that, she was a client, and I was really blessed to have an awesome team of people that were incredibly, like stuck around for a long time, and just really great
0: quality people. Yeah, Gorton Studios existed for uh, about fourteen years, and I think you guys made some significant contributions to Drupal and to the Drupal community. Most notably, I think backup and migrate, right? That's. Like that's one of the top 10 modules of all time that Drupal uses. And that was something you and Ronan created. I, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you wrote some of the initial code with Ronan or Ronan wrote some of the initial code with you. Basically, this was your baby.
1: Yeah. Um, it was much more Ronan's baby than mine. Uh, I contributed small bits. And it, like any open source thing, it started out as a scratch your own itch. We were dealing um, with a, uh, a host at the time that gave, like there was no access to the database unless you filed a support ticket. And if they weren't prompt about getting back to you, uh, you were like, hey, I guess I can't work with the production data on like, which I kind of need in order to duplicate this thing so I can build the next thing, whatever it is. And like one day while uh, noodling this over and being like really frustrated, I think Ronan and I were kind of maybe batting this around out loud and and, essentially something, you know, realized, Hey, you know what? what, actually does have read and write access to this database? Drupal, Drupal <laughs> itself. We don't need no stinking file system or file, filing some stinking ticket. Uh, we'll just write a thing that allows us to actually just grab all the stuff. And so like the first version of backup and migrate was an internal tool only and we called it DB dump. And it was, it was really straightforward. And then, you was know, just grab all the things, and then we added, like, oh, actually, what we don't want is like cash, cash. Tables, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so we like add a you know, exclude these things. And then over time, we realized actually, we've got some clients who've got like all of the zip codes in the United States. And so we like, all right, now we rather than just like defaulting to exclude cash, how about we give the interface to be able to exclude other tables like that? If you don't need you know, 50 megs of zip codes or whatever it was uh, on every single. DB dump that you want, uh, go ahead and exclude those. And so that was absolutely it. And then we realized over time, actually, I wonder, this could be a tool to go ahead and move, you know, like it's better thought of as actually a tool to move back and forth between environments. And then we decided, you know, we should contribute this back. I wonder, I don't know if anybody else wants this thing, but maybe somebody else has a crappy situation and then contributed it back. And it was early enough that, and, and enough other people had this particular pain point for, ease of moving things back and forth that it really took off and then then it became sort of a self-fulfilling like once it's popular um and and, and you, you have to
0: maintain it, it
1: yeah you have to maintain it you absolutely have to maintain it but uh we also very much saw that as like a, a as a way to give back frankly like we yeah. at the time were working a lot with Drupal and felt like it was providing just a tremendous amount of value to us and it was like a. know just trying to be a good open source citizen basically like there's so much that we're getting from this platform from this community here we're going to just toss in this one little tiny thing and try and do you know and and we tried to toss in more than one little tiny thing you know there were other things that we contributed in time and money and other things but it was definitely a concrete example of let's try and give something back which is probably five percent of the value if you were to like Somehow quantify everything that we got out of Drupal. Uh, you know, it would be fractional, what we were devoted to giving back. Not nothing, but again, it just felt like a good citizenships kind of thing uh, initially. And then and then people say appreciative things and that becomes its own sort of reason to to continue. So people say like, oh, this is an awesome module. And you're like, really? You've heard of my module? That's crazy. And then you hear that a bunch of times. You're like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. I like it when people like me. Maybe we will keep working on it.
0: I remember using backup in my grade for the first time and being so thankful that it existed. And then I was curious, like, who made this? Where did this come from? And I went to the page and it was like, Ronan and Drew? Uh, <laughs> Hold on a second. You these guys. Wait. Yeah, they're like, they're like around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. So notes curl was Like a natural extension of backup and migrate, right? Mm -hmm. It was another issue or another scratch that you wanted or itch that you wanted to scratch, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, totally. Again, that had been a light discussion for many years of like, oh, we should, you know, think about a product. Because when you're a services company, I think it's a natural. We certainly did it. And I hear others do it a lot. Like, I wonder if we could build a product. The the one, you know, It's great that we can go ahead and build clients, but we also have to find a new client. And, you know, it gets tiresome. You sort of feel like you're a, you know, like a hamster on a wheel, sort of thing. Like we should build a product, uh, and I think that's a common sort of uh, thought process. And I have strong opinions about that as well. And absolutely something we could talk about. I I think I gave a session at DrupalCon about this uh, a few years ago. I think DrupalCon Barcelona, uh, something like crossing the bridging the gap, uh, doing products as a services company. Uh, at one point in time, Ronan actually just said, "You know what." I can just do this. I'm just going to do this in my spare time. I'm just going to do it to like goof around and like see if I could build, I'm going to challenge myself with a new, you know, something to build to see if I could build a hosted version, uh, basically a hosted destination for, for databases that would be secure and offsite and um, something you could just rely on. And uh, he knocked it together using Drupal. So it's obviously a Drupal module feeds it back up in my right. The site where you would go to find out more about it. Well, Um, actually he didn't, there was no marketing site to start out with, but then he built the receiver on the other end, which was a Drupal site with a bunch of Drupal modules in it. Uh, including, you know, quite a bit of stuff for, you know, like the, the storing of the databases and stuff, which was custom, but a lot of the functionality, it was a standard stuff. It was views for admins, being able to see what, you know, things listed, et cetera. And then he basically brought it in and said, you know what? I've been having a lot of fun with this and um, it's cool, but I don't know what to do next. And it's just basically been a pet project, but I think it might have legs. I think it might go somewhere. Would Gordon studios like in on this? And that, that started off a lot of conversations like, well, that's cool. I don't want to take your baby. Like, like there was a lot of like, sort of dance back and forth. Like, I mean, you built this thing. Are, are you sure? His feedback was basically, yeah. I am sure because I've done all the programming. That's fun. Now it needs like marketing and stuff. And I don't even know what that is. you know, like nobody's going to ever do this. I don't think so. I don't, and I don't know, like those next gaps were totally opaque to him and actually frankly to all of us, but we knew how to maybe take a a crack at him. So he brought it back. He brought into Gordon studios. Um, We had like a little charter that we formed up at the time. And we ran it as an independent company, underneath the Gordon Studios, like obviously you know, by Gordon Studios. Uh, managed to learn our way and and sort of luck our way into a modest amount of success. It was going well, like graphs up to the right, making money, etc. Which is cool as a as a you know product. Essentially, to the point where it became a problem. <laughs> so for me as the CEO. Uh, again, was it 2015? So probably in 2014, I realized that it was growing enough to merit real attention and time. And that was a problem. Like, okay, now we've been just doing this kind of around the edges in our spare times, you know, spare time, quote unquote. Hadn't really made it a huge push. Like we would show up to DrupalCon, we'd have a booth, we'd do other things, but then we go home from DrupalCon, we go back to our billable work, and then maybe remember to tweet once a you know, month or something like that. And again, it continued growing through all of that. We realized that, or I realized, or I, I did a lot of thinking, like either I need to hire someone to be devoted to this full-time, or we need to sell this to someone who will do that same thing, or, well, I suppose the other one would have been shut down. But basically, I was looking between those first two more. less. like, do we need to full time staff this, you know, dedicate actual money. What does that look like? We're gonna you know, break off and again, give it the attention it deserves for the potential that I see in it. Or I could go for the quick win and sell it to somebody and you know, just make gazillions of dollars. <laughs> um, so I was kind of- So you went mm-hmm. for that option? Yeah, I went for that one. Actually I did both simultaneously. I really spent a lot of time planning all those things and then at the same time actively talking to folks. And amongst the people I had an early conversation with was uh, Zach Rosen, who's the CEO of Pantheon. Just wanted to pick his brains because Pantheon came out of an agency that had built a product, a platform, product. and then went on to, you know, great success. And I kind of wanted to like, you know, just the balance and how did you do things? And we just started really getting into it and we had a, just like an awesome conversation. It was at a Pantheon partner dinner in... 2014 range. I happened to crash that dinner to hang out with some friends from Think Shout, who are a great agency based in Portland. Then I just like sat at their booth, and uh, Zach was kind of doing the rounds, like, "Hey, I'm Zach Rosen. I'm the you know president, going around and being sociable and and uh, doing all those you know, like you know working the room in a in a really great way. Actually, I mean it was just a very authentic way." But um, sat down and, and I was like, hey, Zach, you know, like, I just wanna to talk to you for a little bit. And we ended up talking for like three hours and I, I kind of killed his <laughs> circuit of the room. Uh, and then we saw each other again and like, I was like, wow, we're just gonna keep talking. This is really cool. We talked a few more times at different events over the next two or three months where we just ended up being together and we would actually, we just said, all right, we're gonna take a couple hours. Uh, really like, again, I wanna pick your brains and wanna get a feel for this. And at the same time, I was really developing a sense of like, aha, I, I also think Pantheon might be a potential customer for this. And so I started to, in, um, you know, in the back of my head thinking, all right, I'm, I might be able to sell this to these guys. That'd be pretty cool. But problem solved, like get some money and good. I'll go back to continuing this, uh, this cool agency and we're you know, running. I think what Zach was doing, it was like, hmm, this is an interesting guy. This product could be cool, but I'd like to have him on my team. So I think I was selling him NodeSquirrel and he was selling me Pantheon. <laughs> it worked out. I'm happy with where, where we landed. Yeah, that that process went through, and actually, when it first was broached, actually, I uh, have to give credit to my wife as well, because Zach was like, you know what, we we'd like to, you know, we're, we're kind of interested in buying Notes girl, but I really want you to come with it. You and you know, and Ronan as well. And uh, and I actually just laughed. I was like, I can't speak for Ronan. That's you know, you talk to Ronan. If, Ron, if Ronan wants that, that's cool. But. I already have, i it. like, it's got my name on it. It's called Gordon Studios. It's actually my name. Uh, I, I do a thing already and I just kind of laughed. and I thought is this like a negotiating technique and you know, this is respectful and continue the conversation, whatever. That conversation happened to happen in San Francisco. So when I came home, I told my wife, I was like, Hey, honey, the funniest thing happened. I, uh, I was talking to Zach and he, he thought they'd like to hire me too. <laughs> I was like, can you believe it? That's just ridiculous. Uh, and she like, had one of those moments of clarity that I remember certainly very much. She just looked me deep in the eyes, just like, Drew, you have been looking for a change. This is like slap, slap, slap across the face. Like you, th- this would be a pretty cool change, wouldn't it? And I just remember thinking like, Oh yeah, that would be pretty cool. Huh? Was like <laughs> how, how obvious does that have to be before I see it? My goodness. Thank you. Thank you love. That is so, I'm so glad I know someone who knows me better than myself, uh, at least in some ways. Uh, So I went into the next time we had that conversation with a little bit more of an open mind. And that's how it it shaked out. It's been great.
0: What's it like going from being in charge of all the things as a CEO to Mm -hmm. being a part of something that's that's not yours? It's not your baby. What's that like? It's
1: awesome. Uh, I can say that because I have a lot, I have just very high confidence in the people I work with. And that was really important to me going in. I wanted to make sure there was a clear role for me that I could see myself making a difference. And also, I could see myself having a lot of comfort handing over, uh, knowing that other good people were making good decisions that I would agree with. Maybe not every decision, but I would agree with the decision making process. And having been a CEO, I'm very aware of the fact that. A lot of the, the decisions you need to make are based on imperfect information and that don't have a clear, well, duh, the obvious answer is this. I mean, if if you only got those questions as a CEO, that there would be something terribly wrong. Uh, that would mean that the people who are doing the work didn't have the power to make decisions. Like basically the only decisions that would arrive that I needed to make were always the messy ones. Like all the easy ones were taken care of and, and, even, and min, even many of the hard ones were taken care of. Uh, it was really only the particularly snarly ones. And so I actually, this is one of the things I enjoy now is like, I'll hand over a situation. And be like, hey, I'm going to weigh in. Here's what I think is going on. Here's the, the things I'm able to see. Here are my recommendations. Enjoy. Uh, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I think it's fantastic. Another, well, uh, I'll leave it there.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to. I was actually going to ask you what the best part of your job is right now, but I think you just answered that. Well,
1: no, I, I enjoy that freedom, um, I, and I enjoy the ability for me to be able to have l- less emotion and angst, perhaps, tied up in my work. It's it's there are pressures with being responsible for the paychecks of others. And, you know, I'm a manager at Pantheon as well, and I, I still feel some of those pressures, but it's far less um, visceral. At the same time, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that one of the things that I learned as a CEO is that all companies are two to three months from going out of business, every single one. Like, and we see that, companies with massive corporate layoffs, we see uh, all, it doesn't matter what size you are, like, like um, it's just possible. And, you know, as a services business, what you end up doing is you find a new client. Um, And of course you find a new client because you've always been able to find new clients, but you don't know which client it's gonna be and there's always some, uh, like, that is a real and recurring pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Pantheon needs to find new clients. Pantheon needs, it's a product, but we need to continue, you know, doing our work. Um, But not seeing that thing every day is like, I know it's true. Uh, I also, I'm not also not sort of hit with it every, every moment, you know, like, and so I appreciate that. However, if you, you know, like coming back to the thing I like the most, I love the fact that I lead yet another great team. So I have this just really cool team of developer relations folks, and they're all experienced, talented, technical people who have done real work, really interesting stuff elsewhere in the world, Drupal and WordPress, uh, and, and some other systems as well. And they've done it well enough to, to get to a certain level of experience and expertise and accolade from, from uh, people around them. But then they've also got personalities that are just really warm and open and welcoming. And, you know, they give talks at, at different camps and they make friends with lots of people. And they're just like a just really warm, wonderful group of people. So listeners to the podcast might know, for example, David Needham. Who is uh, a Minneapolis ex-resident who lives in uh, Illinois these days? But he's a member of the team. Steve Persh, also in the Drupal team uh, used to be from Palantir, lived in Chicago, then Milwaukee. Now he's actually in Minneapolis. Actually, in the last um,
0: last few months, I you know, We should we should Steve we should get Steve on, get Steve on the
1: podcast. You absolutely should get Steve on the podcast. The I Drupal think person. that would be great. Yeah. And then Dwayne, uh, anybody who's, any, you know, who's ever gone to a Drupal camp has probably met Dwayne. Dwayne is our road warrior. Uh, all of us get out on the road. And then we've got uh, Tessa here locally in the community as well. She's a little bit more active in WordPress, but again, just these fantastic people. And Andrew Taylor in, uh, in Portland these days, again, more, more visible in the WordPress space. But again, all of these folks have given sessions at DrupalCon. Again, so I love the fact that I work with these great people. What we try to do is cross-pollinate best ideas, best practices and help others do their jobs better. And yes, we like it if you do Pantheon, well, you you know, use Pantheon as part of that, Um, but we hope that we're spreading best practices like continuous integration and other things like that. Uh, People will pick them up and use them however they want, but take the code repo, fork it, find good, you know, make it your own, make it your own thing and use it to make your agency uh, more effective. And and it's really easy to rep Prantheon because it's a, it's a pretty great platform. Um, I really wish Gordon Studios had discovered it. It would have saved us a lot of freaking hassles. Um, Servers are not fun. I, I, as the, I used to end up dealing with servers more often than the rest of the team. And so I felt it perhaps a little bit more acutely, but servers suck. (laughs) I just, uh, I'd rather someone else did them as well. Oh man. Yeah. So
0: I, I have to say I'm I'm very impressed with and I've always appreciated the amount of contribution and care that Pantheon takes about open sourcing as many of the things that you guys are working on as possible. You you mentioned Zach early on, and I remember Ted 7 and myself being very interested in Pantheon very early on. And one of the things that struck me was the authenticity that I felt that Pantheon had. And it felt like... Felt like you guys were the the small fish going up against the bigger fish, yeah. and you know I th- I think you I think you've been able to swim up that upstream, and I I see only good things mm. um, coming forth from Pantheon, so I'm I'm glad to see that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, and I think that's a great word to describe. So Zach is incredibly authentic, and so is the rest of the leadership too. Just just all good people who might disagree on the way to do something, but not the why, right? We we want to we want to make life better for our customers. Like well okay good we all agree great. Now what are we doing tomorrow? And um, and to, to have a team around which you can have a great dialogue on things like that. Again, you might not agree with exactly the outcome, but you also agree. Like look, we there is a lot of stuff going on here. We need to make an expedient decision. The decision's made. Let's do it. And that's that feels great too. Right. We're going to do it. Cool. And now. We'll, we'll readdress in six months if we need to,
0: or whatever. And it's great. So, I want to ask you two more questions. One, well, actually, both of them, I mean, they mm-hmm. could be work related or not. It's up to you. What's your favorite thing right now? In the last 24 hours, in the last 40, what's your favorite thing?
1: I like cooking. <laughs> Uh, so one of the things that I've really discovered over the last three to five years is the joy, uh, the simple joy of providing a good meal for others. Last night, my, uh, my youngest son, who is a freshman in high school is, uh, he was, did his first marching band at the football game. We came home at like 10, 11 o'clock and got home and he hadn't eaten dinner. And, um, I made him and my other son quesadillas and I have one myself too, because why not? And we just had like a little, little time together and I, you know, teenage boys that are eating are, make appreciative noises. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, just a simple, it's a simple joy.
0: It is, cherish them while, they're, while yeah. they're there. And my last question before we wrap up, what book should I read next?
1: So I read a lot of fiction. And I enjoy science fiction and fantasy because nerd. Uh, the series that I have most recently just burned through is called The Expanse, which I also have come to learn as a television show. It is an extraordinarily well-written series. The author's name is James Comey.
0: James Comey, as in yeah. the former FBI director?
1: Hmm. Could be confounding. To do. I think it's Comey. I'm going to Google this
0: up. It is
1: uh, the experience.
0: I mean, is he moonlighting?
1: It is. It's not the same guy. I do know that.
0: Okay. Well, I, you know, for a moment, I thought he might be moonlighting.
1: Yeah. Corey, you're right. James Corey. Corey I was confounding to think. So C O R E Y, which happens to be uh, a collaboration of two different uh, authors, but it's set in a, not terribly far future in which mars has been colonized but is being terraformed and the asteroid belt is being worked uh and it has has basically created three distinct sort of civilizations all you know all humans and you know historically all over earth but after a few generations living in the outer belt after a few generations living on mars you start to have your own stories and such and so it's this geopolitical isn't the right word right word is like solar political or soul political perhaps um, uh, storytelling or st- uh, soul political background upon which there's just great storytelling and into that mix is injected some alien technology and it, it's it's again it's great storytelling and it's also extraordinarily plausible it's not so far ahead that you have like imaginary lightsabers or ray guns or other things like that uh, that you're like, well, I don't really know exactly how that works, but whatever, it's kind of interesting. It, this is very, it feels very authentic and it also feels, uh, the thing I enjoy about science fiction and fantasy is that it allows you to take, well done science fiction and fantasy, it allows you to take real people and put them into a different environment and then basically look how, how that environment might shape their behaviors in a way that is eye open. And uh, that's awesome. So
0: it's, a, it's an awesome series. Thank you for the recommendation. We'll, we'll definitely link to it in the transcript. Awesome. Drew, thank you so much for spending your precious time with me.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you. I really enjoyed this. Um, I hope I wasn't too long-winded. I think I might have been.
0: <laughs> I think you're good. All I think right. you're good. So you're at DGorton on Twitter and on Drupal.org, and you're Drew Gorton on Slideshare. at Slideshare.net mm-hmm. slash Drew Gorton. You've been listening to the 10.7 podcast. Find us online at 10.7.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 10.7.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.